Welcome to Enemies from War to Wisdom. Why do we need enemies? From intimate relationships to politics, tribalism, and community, we cannot seem to stop dehumanizing each other. Chronic conflicts in our families, societies, and nations seem inevitable. In this podcast, we analyze human hostilities from the most mundane to the most sophisticated. We apply psychology, psychoanalysis, art, spirituality, and relational theory in conversation about belonging and otherness. Each program will reach for a fresh wisdom that shows us how to step back from creating enemies in our lives. I'm your host, Eleanor Johnson, a videographer and artist with Emma Troop, an experimental theater group in New York City, and I am here with my co-host, Polly Young Eisendratt, who is a psychologist, Jungian analyst, author, and speaker. We approach our ideas each from our own worlds, but always from the spirit and teaching of Buddhism, of which we are lifelong practitioners. Today our topic is what is war? We hope to show that embracing truth and kindness in our approach to self and other helps to keep us from being at war. In North American society, we make war on our enemies, we make war on cancer, on drugs, on bullying, on fake news, and all kinds of opposing ideals. So what do we mean by this and what does this attitude imply? We will talk about the implications and the consequences of imbuing our deepest ideals and beliefs with meaning of hostility, conflict, strife, and competition between opposing forces. We'll explore both and thinking in regard to opposites, life, death, health, sickness, good, bad, virtuous, evil, victim, victimizer, rather than either or ways of understanding opposites. Either or thinking often causes conflict and chaos in our personal lives and in the world and is more often than not the cause of wars. And so let's begin, Polly, with what is war? I know, Eleanor, you and I looked at somewhat the etymology of the word war, like where did that word come from? And it does come from the Anglo-Saxon, and it's, you know, it's related to ger and to gare, I guess, in Latin. And basically, if you if you research it down, it it actually comes from the idea that there are two opposing forces. If you look at it in a formal way, those two opposing forces or those two sides are also armed. They they have some sort of mechanism or ability to harm each other. So I think that the word war means that there are two opposing forces and that those opposing forces can bring harm to each other and that that can lead to a condition which I think has been universally recorded about war which is chaos. So when those two opposing forces are actually harming each other on an ongoing basis, what results is a lack of structure, uh, chaos, and then of course all of whatever the destruction is, whether it's the destruction of life or the environment or society, civilization, of various societies. So let's let's just say that war is the inability to deal with conflict in a way that leads to any kind of resolution or any kind of development. We could say, as we were talking about real dialogue, that real dialogue 
leads to being able to deal with conflict in a way that leads to resolution and understanding, even if the conflict remains, it will lead to something that is a development. War leads to chaos and destruction. It does not lead to resolution. So if you look at any time when people want to make war on something, whether it's you're making war on disease or you're making war on drugs coming into the country, what you will see is over time things will get worse as a result of that warlike attitude and things will become more and more chaotic. So even in the war to end all wars, which was going to be World War I, things actually became more chaotic in the aftermath. And so war is not, not a good way to go. Right. Well, we've never <laughs> uh, known anything but war, have we? I yes. mean, again, the polarization, the extremes. Right. And right. That there's no, all the bridges are down. Right. You know, but I, I thought, you know, because we've at times, you know, we, we quote the Dalai Lama. And one of the things that I've always loved that His Holiness said is that war is like a fire in the human community whose fuel is people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The only certainty is that where there is violence, there is always an inevitably suffering. Yeah. And, you yeah. know, and, and again, when we're talking about trying to open ourselves to understanding both and, and mm-hmm. to, again, to find ways to build a bridge between these polarities, it seems to be a very constructive way of disarming you know, hostility, cruelty, lack of kindness, lack of allowing another person to be different from who you are. Or allowing things to be as they are. For example, the war on cancer, or you find when people have a cancer and they go after the cancer with these weapons of chemotherapy or radiation and so on, the attitude towards the cancer is one that the it, basically the attitude is that the cancer must go, the cancer must die, so to speak. And actually, the cancer, once it begins to emanate in a physical body, we've come to find out, it will become part of the system. And it's the immune system that will actually allow the cancer to live within the body without destroying the body. And so if you go after the cancer too hard, defeating the immune system, right. then you're in a situation where it's very confusing whether the person is suffering from the defeat of the immune system or they're suffering from the disease. And so again, when I, when I talk to people about disease and even death, I almost always say they are not our enemy. That's not the enemy because life and death is what we're in. We're not in life or death here. Right, exactly. We're Again, in the tangle of life right, and death. Right, the both end. That's the, the both end. Yeah. And so, you know, in order for your own being to exist over time, you have to actually accommodate life and death. And so your immune system, for example, or your psychological defenses are designed to help you out with that. They're designed to actually to help you be more resilient, but you're still on a track in which you are eventually going to disappear. And so you can't get out of that track because this is samsara, it's life and death. And so for that reason, I think it's it's really a, a, you know, a delusion to think that we're gonna build some kind of system that's going to make us immortal 
because the very essence of our being mm-hmm. is the combination of life and death. And, and we see that at everything around us also. Things come into being and they begin to die when they come into being. And so then they die and they come into being again. It's impermanence again. Yeah, yeah it's impermanence yeah, yeah. and transformation. Yeah. So again, the attitude of war though is that I am going to stamp out or stomp right. out or I'm going to develop an atom bomb so that I can create peace. Yeah, and I'm in just going to destroy yeah. something in order to make things the way I want them to be. So there's that illusion of I know how things should be and that kind of gets back to that issue of truth, you know, that individuals actually often don't know how to solve the problems of a group, a society, a culture. They need each other and the different opposing sides, as we said way back in the beginning of our podcasting, um, the the opposing sides in any kind of conflict need each other in order to find solutions that are enduring. And war eliminates that. War war just eliminates, wants to eliminate one side. Do you think that we're a little bit more aware, or it's more in popular mind, the understanding of interdependence that, you know, as we destroy one country, we're also destroying our own ecosystems, or that, you know, there's this interconnection of everything with everything else? Do I think that more people understand that yeah, right that now? A little bit more um, kind of out out in the world now in terms of, you know, maybe mass mind. Well, there's I more, mean, there's yeah. there's an understanding of interdependence in terms of ecology, I think, and or globalization um, and, and or, the environment and yeah. so on. But I, I think that I still think it's poorly understood in regard to people relating to each other. And yeah. also um, in regarding in regard to the conflicts that we have with each other, that we need both sides. I, I think that what happens with interdependence is people embrace it on the nice, nice side. They like the idea of it and the sort of kumbaya of it. You know, we're all together here and we're going to make, we're a, nice, we're going to make a nice one place for us and so on. But yeah. in order to deeply, deeply embrace interdependence, you, you have to deeply embrace uh, life and death, and you have to deeply embrace the good and the evil. In other words, you can't leave out one side and make war on that side. And so that's actually harder for people to truly embrace. And that's what you're talking about in terms of the relationship between love and hate. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that actually love and hate go together. Yeah. And so if love is going to contain hate, yeah. It has to know that hate is part of love. Right. So back to the, the, the issue of war, though, in terms of something that we found out when we were researching this, Homo sapiens, again, well, you know, the species that we are in is a very violent species with a very violent history. And we found out that 90 to 95% of known societies throughout history have engaged in war and some of those in continuous war. I would say even many of them in continuous war. So ever since there's been human society, homo sapien society, because homo sapiens wiped out the other humans. So, you know, there were, as we talked about in the beginning, there were five different species of humans and the homo sapiens killed off the other ones and they killed them in kind of massive, um, massive killings from before they even had weapons. They were able to drive them into crevices, deep crevices, so that they could kill hundreds at a time from the very beginning. And so this is the species that we are. 
This is the species that we contend with and also must embrace in order to improve. We have to say, okay, I'm a homo sapien. And so my orientation is going to be first and foremost, self-protective of myself and my tribe. Secondly, I am going to notice what's wrong and what is not going right more than I notice what's going right. And thirdly, I'm going to remember the things that went wrong much more than what I remember what went right. So given those negativities and the violence, I actually am going to have to work hard to get off of the path of war. So the idea that we're going to bring about peace in the world, I believe is a kind of far-fetched idea. You know, if we can actually bring about greater peace in relation to our day-to-day right relating to each other right Right. and then some methods like dialogue to deal with the conflicts of desires and opinions and ideologies maybe then we can begin to build some path towards understanding even what peace might look like between people but i cannot imagine that we, on this period of time, when there are so many homo sapiens on the planet, way, way more than used to be, like 7 billion, I can't believe that we're going to be able to rise above our history and suddenly create a peaceful planet. And, and my feeling is that the baby boomer generation had that fantasy and that the fantasy actually has caused, in some ways, more suffering. But I think it's also opened the door to the possibility of practicing mindfulness, of noticing what's going on moment to moment and so on. But I think that the fantasy that we were going to bring about peace kind of brought us really quickly to try to impose democracies on other societies, to impose globalization on people to impose maybe even ideals of socialism because socialism can only work if people embrace it in a way that allows them to be free as individuals as well. So we we tried to bring about various things, I think, too quickly. It's like we, we got into kind of forcing this ideal of peace and equality on others in the world rather than working with our species and seeing who we are, well, I think and that, what that it we're would take. waking up to that now. I mean that we're learning from 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 our our mistakes, and this is an evolutionary process that we're in. So you know, we we are. I mean, we're gradually waking up. We're getting we're getting a little bit more aware of you know that which doesn't work. A little bit more. A little bit. Yes. I mean, you know. I mean, I think the the, are, way, I mean, the waking up. I do think there is waking up going on. But I also, when I read this statistic last night of 90 to 95% of known societies throughout history have engaged in war. Exactly. We've never known anything else but war. Yeah, this is, you know, we are are a violent, violent species. And if we actually are going to wake up, we have to wake up to our violence first. We have to wake up to I am a violent species. And then... I need to address well, ex- how I do that on a moment-to-moment exactly, basis. Exactly, and, an external um, peace is impossible without internal peace. Well, I don't know if that's true. I, I don't know. I mean, I think that everything, you, you can bootstrap. 
Uh-huh. You know, you can have a, a little more uh, a- attitude of kindness towards yourself, a little bit more of speaking the truth to yourself, a little bit more of working with your own internal conflicts and not projecting a right. part of that onto right. others. Right. Uh, and then at the same time, you're getting a little more that way. You can also get a little more on the outside. I mean, you know, ultimately the outside and the inside don't Go. really exist. I mean, they're, yeah. they're the same thing. Yes, We're always exactly. doing both yes, of them. Yes. So, you know, it's I, I think the idea that you have to arrive into some sort of greater insight or peace with yourself before you can make peace with others. I don't go by that anymore. Uh-huh. I, I actually think you can do both uh-huh. at the same, you can do your peace with others, your peace with yourself, work on uh-huh. them simultaneously. Yeah. Yeah. You don't have to arrive at point A in uh-huh. order to get uh-huh. to point B. Right, right, right. And, yeah. Um, yeah. and yet I know that was the way it was talked about uh-huh. uh, in the seventies and eighties, right, right, you know, right. kind of like we right. have to do this within ourselves before we can do it with others. Well, it certainly helps. I think it's, well, you know, again, if you don't make a strong distinction between what's within you and what's between you and others, so that, you know, you realize that you're speaking to yourself and you're speaking to others, that then you begin to see that this idea that one thing is above the other or becomes first before the other, you know, it's like, are you a self or are you actually dependently arising with all the other selves you know it's it's not clear moment to moment so what we regard as a self is an interactive process and it's habituated with others so if we try to change the way that we speak to others we're likely to change the way we speak to ourselves i mean so there's no self in here self out there it's you know it's this interactive thing that's why i think when we talk about finding peace with ourselves, it, it really has to be both self and other. It has to be between as well as within. And I think they can happen, as I said, bootstrapping back and forth. Don't stop yourself from finding a way to speak the truth kindly to yourself or others. You know, if you first start with others, fine, do that. Then try to apply it to yourself. Well, sometimes that's yeah. very helpful to start with others. Yeah, I mean, some people actually will notice that when they speak truth kindly to others, they can be kinder to themselves. They can be kinder to themselves, yeah. 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 And uh, so I wanted to uh, also just mention that um, the earliest recorded evidence of war was approximately, the evidence, the archaeological evidence, is approximately 14,000 years old. I remember when you were saying that, yes. So that's way, way older than these practices of any kind of spirituality or religion that we know about that we're trying to apply to solving the problem. So we could say that Homo sapiens habituated to the practice of war before they habituated to the practices of peace and spirituality, although these early civilizations probably also had a deep spiritual connection to their environment. Their environment was very animated for them. And apparently, again, by looking at these archaeological studies, war originated pretty much with, with agriculture. When people were primarily hunting, gathering, when they when Homo sapiens were primarily hunters and gatherers, they were still killers, but they weren't doing it in war. They weren't organizing 
big conflicts. It was once they started storing goods when they had, yeah. and trying to build up some personal wealth for their tribe. Right. Before maybe they were that, more engaged in just survival. Yeah, they survival. They didn't have time to, I mean, they yeah. were dealing with yeah. having to find food yeah. and keep, keep it, stay alive. Yeah, yeah. And but they I weren't do. very powerful vis-a-vis -vis the uh, bigger animals right, around. Right, right, right. But, uh, you know, they got they got powerful over time by uh, getting together and gossiping and things. But <laughs> that was according to Harari, and it makes sense to me. But the um, the the interesting thing well, is Well, we that, are evolving. Well, we the hunter-gatherers were practicing mindfulness. They were paying close attention ah, yeah. to lots of things on a moment-by-moment -moment basis, and they were just doing things that were right before their nose. They weren't accumulating a right, lot. Right. So you could argue, one thing you could argue is that that might have been, you know, a more enlightened time rather than less so that we might be devolving rather than evolving in <laughs> our ability to deal with yeah, the moment to moment yeah. reality. Yeah. And to well, we um, certainly deal with it. more complexity today. We have, yeah, and the thing is, yeah. that what happened is that our species dominated yeah. the planet and yeah. multiplied and used a lot of resources, and we did that largely through violence, That's and we right. and we have continued to do That's it right. largely through violence. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, is it possible? We protect life by killing. Yeah, is it possible yeah. to do something differently? And I think that well, that's what we're hoping to um, inspire and. And others, yeah, that was, we can do it differently. So, what is the path from war to wisdom? I mean, where is that path, and is it something that is obscure, or is it something that's pretty clear, but maybe hard for human beings to embrace? What do you think? Well, I think it takes work. I don't think it's easy. I don't think it's an affirmation you say to yourself every morning that's going to get you there. I think it's really hard work to wake up. I think it's also, George Eliot said, it's it's an agony to be fully conscious. I mean, it takes real dedication, courage, trust. It takes a lot of work to, to, well, to well, stay awake and to be present in in your life and in how you interact with others and how you interact with your society. Well, how society. did the hunter and gatherer get that? Well, gee, you know, I don't really know. <laughs> I wasn't because, there then. Well, I can't. My memory doesn't go back that but far. We could, we could imagine that it might have come from simplicity. Simplicity, and, yeah. and also I think survival. I mean, you you know, all the conditions in terms of you know the, this the state of the consciousness of the primitive people. So you know, I don't know if I would. You know, that word yeah. primitive is not yeah. so great a, a yeah. word. I mean, it's the state of consciousness yeah. of people when they're not distracted a lot by possessions and by trying to accumulate things for right. themselves and their families. It might be a better way of living, although it's not Did our way now. Did they have smaller brains then? No, not at all. They had bigger brains. Ah. Yeah, actually bigger. Ah. Actually, they were also living as long as we're living now, uh -huh. and they seem to have healthier lives. Uh -huh. That's why people are trying to get into that diet, uh -huh. you know, the diet that they follow. Well, at least uh, in terms of the, uh, the feminine, they were a lot rounder. <laughs> Well, those are the statues, I and mean, I'm not sure that they were really looking like those statues. That was but yeah, but the the um, so back to this issue mm. of I, I'm not sure that I uh, agree with George Eliot either. Mm. Uh, could you just read that quote again? Well, um, there was just a line in one of her her, yeah. her novels where she said it's uh, one of her characters said it's it's an agony to be fully conscious. I mean, and and what what I heard in that was that you know it's really it's so hard work. yeah i mean yeah. so i would i would say it's an agony 
to be really unconscious. Well, yes. You know, I, I think that maybe what she's meaning is that the agony is recognizing the things that we do. And, and that was, we do was, uh, that we do without meaning to do yeah. them, like the violence against yeah, and dealing uh, with the ignorance and the, the the kind of prejudice that were in some of the characters. I think that was in. I'm not sure if it was Middle March or, mm-hmm. but I'm a fan of George Eliot. But I always remembered that line. The agony for me, you know, was tied more to the the hard work of of you know of consciousness and waking up. And yeah, that's how I, I mean, that's how I kind of. Yeah, I know that's the way that yeah. you and you and you often speak about the hard work of waking up, and I speak about the hard work of ignorance. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's like if you think education is expensive, try ignorance. Right. right. Generally speaking, the 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 path towards war and destruction is a path of greater suffering than the path towards any kind of peace and dialogue. And so, yes, it may take effort, it may take discipline, it may take integrity, but the other option is just so much more trouble. And that's what we have so much of. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, again, to to, to get back to the kind of species we are, the nature of, samsara the world of life and death so if you just tumble through this world unconsciously and you're dragged around by your thoughts and feelings and you and you're in conflict all the time with the people around you if all of that is the case then actually things are a lot more trouble than if you are trying to sort out some of these issues so that you might be able to find some greater happiness. So, you know, yes, it 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 takes discipline and it takes it takes thoughtfulness and it takes this ability to step back, this decentering, in order to master some of these skills. But if you don't master them, things really are a lot worse. You know, it's not like you there's there's not another road. You know, it's like there's only this one road, which is the road of what I would call equanimity and, you know, compassion and kindness. But you can say that in a thousand different ways. So right. let's talk about the, the, the path from war to wisdom, because that's the path that we're going to be um, following in terms of looking at these conflicts, these two-sided oppositional conflicts from the point of view that we can actually learn something from them and that they will not lead to greater violence or greater ignorance. The first step, again, as we've said so many times, is to recognize how easy it is for us to turn to war as a certain kind of solution and how easily also we can project our enemy that sense that there's some other to blame to the outside of ourselves. And then once we do that, once we humiliate the other or we, you know, kind of chart the faults of the other or whatever, we evoke rage, we evoke response from the other, and then we enter into a cycle of humiliation and rage, which can easily lead to the cycle 
of projective identification right, and internal, war. That internal yes. theater um, of emotional meaning that is threatening to both, as you've often said when you're talking about um, projective identification. Yeah, and yeah. and when you talk about it as a, if you talk about it on a cultural level or uh-huh. it, or at the level of war, it's usually that people have identified their tribal enemy. You know, these are the ones that killed or that destroyed or that raped or whatever. And so we have to, we have to now, you know, do things back to them and, or humiliate them. And then that enrages them. And so then it becomes a cycle of projective identification. And that cycle is why wars become chronic and become repeated. And that's what we're seeing so clearly now. And again, with our media and with, with the internet and stuff, we're just, we're on site in a way that is very different from the way it was when we first discovered the Vietnam War because we had television. So it was brought mm-hmm. into our living room. Mm-hmm. And that was the mm-hmm. very beginning of our being able to have, you know, direct experience with the horrors of war. Well, it was, and now yeah. we see it. I mean, it's it goes, it's 24-7. It's nonstop. Yeah, well, that's actually another kind of a- aspect, I think, of the lack of wisdom in the way that we use media because right. often we are... Um, we're hyping up some sort of position. Like when I did see the beheading on Facebook some years ago now, maybe it was four or five years ago, where I opened up Facebook and there was a video of a beheading going on. And so I suddenly saw something that I would never see in my actual life. And I was then, uh, you know, I had all of the emotional effects of, of watching that and being taken into it, but it wasn't something that I had knowledge of. It wasn't something that I truly understood even why it was going on or who was what. And so again, bringing war like that uh, into, and the violence of it into our media and then introducing it to people so that they have an emotional response can actually lead to far more chaos than if they simply heard about it. And so, you know, from the point of view, again, of uh, what is the path from war to wisdom, one of the steps in the path is to recognize that uh, human emotions are both, they're both expressive and evocative. And if you see or do something that does evoke a lot of emotional response, that is the point at which you need your ability to contain your own reactivity if you are going to try to avoid war, if you're going to try to avoid simply making the other your enemy or trying to defeat the other through some sort of either mental strategy or physical strategy. So, you know, the whole aspect of seeing distant violence, which came into being particularly with film and then television, it, it has had a big effect. And I don't think it's, um, it's a, a positive one. I don't think so people would say, well, how would you know then well, can, what's going I mean, it on? Can't, when it really, really works, it can be quite an awakener. Well, if you know, if you can know it without creating another enemy, well, yes, like of creating the enemy of the military, then, right, right. you know, or our military is doing this. Well, you know, I mean, in my work and in, in my film work, I mean, I, what I've taken on is, is, is war and it's what I've been dealing with for so many long years, but 
in order to really fully kind of come into an embodiment of, of, of in my own way to understand, I had to go on site. Mm-hmm. So that was when I began doing the earthwalks and I went into the areas that where the actual events happened. Mm-hmm. And so that my whole feeling body could be actually in the place of it. And I could do that research and talk with people and, and, and also f- find a way to come to an understanding. Again, the both and so that... I didn't want to create more enemies. I wanted to understand. I mm-hmm. wanted to be able to find some kind of neutral ground, but to also understand the damage, you know, the the the, the horrific suffering of war. So yeah, um, and then once you saw and these knowing sites, that it was what really brought me to prayer. Uh huh. It's what brought me to. I it brought it, it awakened something in me. It changed my life, and I don't really know how to talk about it from with language. But I do think I've succeeded in the way I talk about it with images and the uh-huh. way that I, I induct through imagery. Um, and so it has it, everything to do with you know with kindness and with 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 approaching it. You know, approaching that particular very traumatizing truth. Uh-huh. It happened. Massive, massive lives were lost. Just well, it happened over and over and over and over and over and over history. Fourteen thousand yes. years of it. We never went. You know. I mean, I didn't go back. I, I mean, I went back to the eight. I mean, I think I stopped at the eight hundreds. Right. I didn't go. Yeah. The, yeah. I mean, I knew about the earlier times, but just going through that whole cycle again and again and seeing the pattern just repeat itself over and over again in the extraordinary, extraordinary loss of life. So, you know, the I know that you did a lot on World War II, which was, I found out, the yeah. deadliest yeah. of all wars from 1939 to 1945, right. 60 to 85 million deaths. Yeah. That war was, of course, also a kind of series of events that capitulated one into the other into the other, with Hitler and Stalin being at the forefront of leadership and the reactivity to one side and the other side. And that, I think, probably is the war that was in the minds of baby boomers, especially because our parents were involved. And then we came into being just after that war. So from a karmic point of view, that was the ground on which we were born. Right, exactly. And um, I inherited the Second World War through through my father and his father because I come I have a military lineage that I come from. Yeah, I so... also found that, you know, when I walked Normandy that I also felt I had to walk the German cemetery. Mm-hmm. So I did both. Right. I did one day, I did Normandy with the Allied, you know, with mm-hmm. the, the victors. Mm-hmm. And then, and one of the most intense experiences for me was when I walked the uh, the German cemetery. Mm-hmm. And it was also the fact that because I was walking it, it was the staring that others stared at me because I was there doing that. Like, was I part of that? You know, was I part of the Nazi tradition or what? Mm-hmm. I mean, there was, it was a very kind of experience. I mean, you felt that people were taking sides, even yeah, looking even, at yes, you. And, yes, and there was, it was so sparse. The yeah. word, it was a, it was so sparse. It wasn't like if you walked Normandy, it was this, it was like you felt like you were, you were walking on a ground that was full of light. 
And when you walked to the German cemetery, you felt this darkness, this heaviness. It was very, very pronounced. But, but yes, I, but the, I wonder but was, if you know if people, even in perceiving things, yes, they want to take sides exactly. immediately. This is the bad, and this That's is right. the good. And why are you and, doing that? Why? I mean, the whole thing of why are you doing that? You're why are you walking the German cemetery? But the whole thing was to to find a way to just dissolve those those animosities and to try to just come into another form of understanding. Well, you know, the way that I think about things happening so quickly that people make a judgment of you even walking on the German cemetery is that, again, we protect ourselves. We protect our tribe. That's right. What we believe is the virtuous one. And that is the big mistake. Right, exactly. That is the first and yeah. fundamental mistake yeah. because if you cannot have the same compassion and concern for the other side, there'll be no end to this. It will only be war after war after war, which right. is what has happened. Right. The World War II was the deadliest, but the Mongolian War, which was in the 13th century, 60 million people died. And so between the 13th century and the 20th century, there was a lot of time to learn from that 60 million that died in the Mongolian War. And, and I don't think anything was learned. I think what, what happened was that what was learned were the skills of war and not, not anything about how to avoid war right. or what war is beyond simply devastation and chaos. You know, and not wanting that to come to your right. side of the formula. Right. So I always, I in in my film, I quote Eleanor Roosevelt, who, when she said in 1945, right after the end of the Second World War, she said, "When will our conscience grow so tender that we will act to prevent human misery rather than avenge it?" Mm -hmm. So you know, I think again that very few leaders have tried to do that. World leaders, Nelson Mandela, in my view, is the one single leader who as a leader said, I am not going to avenge the war that was visited upon my people and the pain and suffering that I have had in prison. And he didn't. He actually went out and worked with both sides and of course started Truth and Reconciliation also, again, with the idea of speaking the truth. And of course, people spoke the truth from their own perspective. That's right. That's and right. they were able to do That's that right. without any repercussions. So, you know, in this sort of step from war to wisdom, I believe that the first step has to be the recognition of how violent and reactive we are and how nobody is free of that. And then the second step has to be working with those those kinds of reactivity, those emotional reactivities, so that you can work with yourself enough to contain and feel your own feelings, and then speaking to the other person that you disagree with from an I statement, from this is how it seems to me, and then having the question, how does it seem to you? And being able to hear that and listen to that, you have to have this equanimity. You have to have this ability to actually hear that somebody else is saying something that might be in direct opposition to what you hold right. to be dear right. and to listen to it, not right. to agree with it. Right. The, the whole thing is you have to step back from who's right and who's right. wrong, right. from this idea of judgment. And I know when we were talking about speaking the truth kindly, we didn't get around to judgment, but judgment is not 
the truth. No. When you're judging this person is no. good, this you're person is bad. Separation, division. That, that's always that's always yeah, not a good have, way to go. Yeah, you're, the yeah. bridge is down. So the thing you know, also, so so compassion actually needs to trump judgment on many many issues when it comes to the movement from war to any kind of dialogue or any kind of wisdom. You know, we have to move away from the idea of justice and more towards the idea of compassion. Or we cannot stop the wars. Right. I mean, the thing that I'm reflecting on now, um, again, having spent so much of my, my, my life dealing with this, is that through time you had all of these stories of people who in the face of the opposition of someone who refused to let them have their truth. And so there was all of these, just these waves of mass suicide where people just refused and they wouldn't pick up a gun or they wouldn't harm. Mm -hmm. They would just, mm -hmm. they would, I mean, you had like people that would walk in at a thousand strong into this. They would sing these chants and they'd walk into the sea. They'd mm -hmm. walk into the fire. Mm -hmm. They mm -hmm. would put their neck out to be, you know, mm -hmm. have it chopped off. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't pick up a gun mm -hmm. or they wouldn't pick up a mm -hmm. bow and arrow, mm -hmm. you know? And so they, in a sense, were holding some, some internal truth Yeah, that, that they, they didn't participate in creating. Well, they protested great, but they, and they that went, way. Yes. And they had a belief system when you, you know, you did the research, you realized they also had a belief system regardless if they were indigenous or they were in early Christian traditions or Jewish or, um, Islam or whatever that they that they were going home to something higher than what was in this realm mm -hmm. of existence. So they were going home to the Buddha. They were going home to God. They were going home to the cosmos. Well, they and weren't they were, going to participate. They weren't going in to, the they, destruction. No, they were not, yeah. and they couldn't find a way to yeah. create a dialogue. Yeah. And that you know, was a, that was extraordinary to realize, and you just to see it over time. Again, a pattern was there. Well, apparently in the SS, when the Nazis were training the uh, Hitler's youth, about 20% of the people who were trained refused. And right. they usually were killed. They, they, they were so, sent to the camps. And so or they were yeah. killed outright, yes, right, right in the right, training, right. or they right. were sent away. Yes, but, yes, yes. but apparently that number of about 20% refusing to being inducted into violence is 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 a very usual number so there are always some human beings who refuse to do it when the violence is being trained but you know the other side of the of the issue is within families and within couples and so on creating the war in which we need to find an enemy or a scapegoat and then actually engaging in the, you know, the untruthful narrative about that enemy, always blaming that person or that individual. That kind of war, I believe, um, goes on in many, if not most families. And again, that there is a way to address that in regard to dialogue mm -hmm. and being open to trying to speak your own truth and hear someone else and to speak it kindly. I think it's a path that we can follow pretty readily is to work with our own families. Yes, and I think, you know, again, another uh, line from my, my work is, again, the, the Second World War from Simone Weil, Weil, if I'm saying her name correctly, and she wrote, the great error of nearly all studies of war has been to consider war as an episode in foreign policy 
when it's an act of interior politics. Yeah. Reinforcing not, from another right. another kind of philosophical point right. of view. Uh, a that human, it's built into yeah, the yeah, organism. It's yeah, built yeah, into the species. Yeah. It's not a result of foreign policy. Yeah. I mean, foreign policy, of course, at a certain level plays a role. Yes. And, you know, you can have a foreign policy that actually is tilted towards dialogue. Or you can have a foreign policy it that's tilted an, towards ideology. Right. Well, it makes yeah. a huge difference, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. If yeah. there's if yeah. there's openness to actually yeah. being yeah. able to speak. Yeah. But again, going back to people who have committed suicide in the face of being inducted into violence, uh, it's it hasn't been an available method for most people to recognize how speech plays a role yeah. always yeah. in regard to violence, and that speech is important to watch and can be watched pretty easily in your own experience because i think many people think you know sticks and stones will break my bones but words will never hurt me and that's not true the words from the beginning of homo sapiens when they could gossip talk about things that were not present are very very powerful for human beings and the way we use words and the way we express our emotions through words, actually, I think, will make the difference between war and peace eventually. Well, I'd like to share these words as we end today from a great Western tradition from one of our great poets, Goethe, where he goes, if each one of us sweeps in front of our own steps, the whole world would be clean. Lovely. Very nice. Thank you, Paula. Thanks, Eleanor. (laughs) Thanks so much for listening. And to continue the conversation, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find past episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and CastBox. Enemies from War to Wisdom is recorded and produced by Chris Coltrane.